Good morning, everybody. This is Phil Bell here with All Things Trains. I hope you enjoyed yesterday's series on the Erie Lackawanna. October 17th is what I call Erie Lackawanna Day because, frankly, I love the Erie Lackawanna. It's my all-time favorite railroad. And, of course, it was the 63rd anniversary of the creation of the Erie Lackawanna Railroad, which happened on October 17th, 1960, when the Erie and the Delaware Lackawanna and Western merged together to create the Erie Lackawanna. But... What I think is even more interesting is the time that the railroad operated in. Now, in the 1960s, it's always important to remember that railroading had reached an inflection point. On one hand, you had many, many years of optimism that followed World War II. Because during the World War II era, a lot of people had to travel by train because uh, opportunities to purchase personal automobiles were curtailed, and also the ability to travel by other means, including airlines, were also curtailed or you know limited because a lot of a lot. Uh, was needed for the war effort. Now, at the same time, though, you also had a lot more freight moving by rail because there was such a buildup and mobilization to support the war effort. So that made the freight railroads, or I should say the railroads, because in those days they provided both passenger and freight service, they made them very, very wealthy. And there was a big belief that after that, they would be able to capture this by, number one, on the passenger side, continuing to provide uh, improved services, which was a process that had started just before World War II with the introduction of streamlined railroad equipment, but also on the freight side by continuing to provide good competent service. But the Erie Railroad primarily was not uh, you know, in a great place to do this. Now, the Erie had always been a an example of what happens when financial manipulation goes awry. And whether you're talking about the robber barons, Jay Goulds, and so forth, almost everyone, even uh, Commodore Vanderbilt, to a certain extent, had been involved with the Erie in some form. That's how it got its name, the Scarlet Woman of Wall Street. And as I said in one of my posts, it was very good at creating small fortunes because it took big fortunes and made them small. Now, uh, at the same time, you had the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western, which was a very, very vibrant carrier and far outsized for where it actually went, which was from Hoboken, New Jersey, on the western shore of the Hudson River, up to Buffalo, New York, with branches that went to Syracuse, Oswego, and also Utica. Now, in reality, if you look at it, it really wasn't that big a carrier at all, but it played an important role, just as the Erie did, because it connected with the nickel plate at Buffalo, and ultimately formed a fourth trunk line between New Jersey, New York City area, North Jersey, and Chicago. Now, these carriers merged for a variety of reasons. You know, first of all, as I mentioned, the Erie was always a financial basket case, and as a result, it was unable to take full advantage of what came about in the mid-20th century. So while it was able to dieselize, and the best example of it are the famous E8s in their two-tone green paint, along with the Alco PAs and so on, it was also not able to reap the full benefits of that and mechanization. That's because it just simply never had the money. And that's even after being part of the Van Swearingen Brothers Allegheny Corporation Empire and technically being a subsidiary of the Chesapeake in Ohio. And the Chesapeake in Ohio was, of course, such a strong driving force financially thanks to its coal access that it became the C in today's CSX. So you had the Erie, which is, again, a terminal basket case. Now, the Lackawanna on the other side 
it never was able to do what a lot of people had really thought it would, which was merging with the Nickel Plate Road. In fact, it had purchased a large block of stock per H. Roger Grant's book, uh, Death of an American Railroad, which tells the Erie Lackawanna story and where I got a lot of my knowledge on the carrier uh, itself. Had The DL&W had a large block of Nickel Plate stock, but it could never make a merger work. And ultimately, the Nickel Plate ended up being swept into the growing Norfolk and Western, and being a large part of its operations and remains so today. So where does this leave the DL&W? Out in the cold. So the DL&W, the Erie, and the Delaware and Hudson get together and do merger studies. And this would have been a great combination because now you'd have a carrier that has a main line to Chicago that has duplicate trackage on the way to Buffalo, which could be rationalized. Now, if you followed us here at All Things Trains, you know we are not by any means, a fan of rationalizing track. We'd never tear up track. We think it's stupid to tear up track, but they believed at the time that tearing up track was a good idea because reducing the amount of track out there would lower operating costs and lower property taxes, which in New York State, where the Erie, Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western, and the Delaware and Hudson were big, uh, New York State has long been a predatory uh, jurisdiction as far as taxing railroad property and remains so to this day in 2023. So, you know, getting rid of duplicate track, especially across uh, the southern tier between Binghamton and Hornell, would have been able to save some money. And also, adding the Delaware and Hudson in, you had access to New England through, um, through the Mechanicville Gateway outside of Albany and also into Montreal and ultimately the port there. So theoretically, this new carrier would have been able to compete in the same lane as the St. Lawrence Seaway and potentially siphon some of that traffic off at Montreal rather than simply seeing it go away uh, as the Erie would have, you know, would have seen as that was created. But something interesting happened during this merger study. Turns out the Delaware and Hudson which was the smallest of the three carriers, was also the most financially stable and ultimately would have been the biggest part of the merger. So I want you to think about that for a second. You've got two big, uh, venerable businesses in the Erie and the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western. You have two management teams that are proud. Uh, you know, they're used to being the people who are going to run the show and then they get told, look, if you do this deal with the third guy, the guy who you think is just kind of, you know, some little railroad out there, those managers are actually going to be in charge. Those shareholders are going to be the ones holding the largest piece of the pie. And ultimately, the Erie and Lackawanna told the Delaware and Hudson to pound sand. But don't worry, because the DNA should be back later. So in 1960, October 17th, the Erie and the DL&W merge, and it creates the Erie Lackawanna, and it is instantly filled with problems because uh, the Interstate Commerce Commission had a number of, and I believe it was the ICC, not another agency, but there were a number of labor protections that the unions had fought for. So ultimately, while the company was able to come together and legally merge, it technically really wasn't merged because a lot of the original operations had to continue while the court battles were being fought out. And so this cost the new company, which was, again, as we know, uh, made up of a couple of companies that weren't in great shape. It struggled to get out of the gate. And this was ultimately just yet another example of what would help keep the Erie Lackawanna from ever realizing what the consultants and managements of its 
uh, predecessors had hoped would happen. Now, the Erie Lackawanna only had, as I recall, one profitable year, and I think the amount of money they made was $3.8 million. And it operated for 16 years, so you know you can tell one out of 16 probably isn't very good when you're a business that's supposed to be a for-profit business. Uh, and you know there wasn't a mechanism, at least at the time, for making it into a nonprofit organization. Uh, one of the things that really helped make this even more problematic was the commuter trains that were operated in the state of New Jersey. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that New York State, where the majority of the railroad trackage, combined railroad trackage was, uh, was a predatory taxing agent authority. Well, so was the state of New Jersey. In fact, the uh, H. Roger Grant book, and we'll add a link in the description to where you can get that, talks about how the state of New Jersey would tax railroad property at 100% of full value. So I want you to think about how ridiculous it is when the tax assessor shows up and jacks up the price of your house uh, as they do seemingly every year. Well, let's remember that when we're talking about the Erie Lackawanna Railroad, you have the Hoboken Terminal, which today you can visit and you can see how much, even in a reduced state, uh, space was required and how much property was for all of the coach layover yards, the engine maintenance facilities, and so on, that almost exclusively supported commuter rail service. And to a lesser extent, the small and dwindling passenger rail business, uh, which was trains such as the Lake Cities and the Phoebe Snow, originally the Erie Lackawanna Limited, uh, all of that was going. And even when passenger service is making a profit, you can see in the numbers that the profits aren't very high. So the amount that you know, the amount of revenue that has to come in to cover these taxing authorities that just decide they are entitled to it just be to money that isn't even there, just because you know they sat there in Trenton was insane. And so this is one of the things that really helped uh, the Erie Lackawanna struggle. Then when you leave the Hoboken area and you go north, so through Bergen County, through Passaic County and the like, and you see the infrastructure that's still there as part of today's New Jersey Transit main line and Bergen County line, just for what's there for passenger service, you could see again, the tax burden was very, very high. Then I want you to add to it what was necessary for freight service. Uh, go to Secaucus, New Jersey, today's Croxton Yard, not quite what it was in Erie Lackawanna days, but still a very busy place. It is uh, Norfolk Southern's hub in the North Jersey area and a very important intermodal facility today. Then it not only provided intermodal access for what was an early business at the time, and a number of you might remember Erie's Flying Saucer. That was the name for their uh, you know, one of their intermodal trains, which became CX-99 and NY-100, the two famous UPS carrying trains that Erie Lackawanna operated. But... Uh, that yard, Croxton, also was the general freight yard for the region. So I want you to think about the Erie Lackawanna bringing all this freight in to be dispersed throughout North Jersey and in some cases interchanged to other carriers uh, coming into Croxton Yard. So there was a lot of property there. This meant a big property tax burden for the carrier. Now, going beyond property taxes, let's also remember that the Erie Lackawanna didn't operate in a vacuum. It was in a competitive marketplace, and that competitive marketplace included to its north the New York Central, and then as we mentioned earlier, the uh, excuse me the the DL and W and nickel plate combination. Well, after the DL and W became part of the Erie Lackawanna, keep in mind there was also still the Lehigh Valley, which operated between Newark, New Jersey, 
also on the Erie, Lackawanna, and Buffalo. So it was competing there, and at Buffalo, it was turning traffic over to the Nickel Plate, but later the Norfolk and Western. Uh, to the south of the Erie, Lackawanna, you had the Pennsylvania Railroad, the Pennsylvania Railroad who controlled the Norfolk and Western. Uh, and the Pennsylvania was, as with the New York Central, a very, very extensive system. Both of those carriers had the ability to route traffic to places and in ways that neither the Erie or Lackawanna could ever dream about. And we're talking areas like southeastern Ohio. We're talking about St. Louis. We are uh, getting into Michigan and so forth. And these are areas that maybe the Erie could have gotten to through traffic arrangements with other carriers. Although in those days of regulation, those traffic arrangements were not necessarily easy to come by. And there had to be some sort of beneficial reason to the other carrier to make such a traffic arrangement. And when you look at the map, uh, and we'll also link one of those in the description below, you'll see why that wasn't really something that uh, other railroads were inclined to do simply to make the Erie's fortune better, especially when the Erie Lackawanna had very little to offer it, it offer them in terms of access to their markets. So you look at this competition, you look at the growing highway competition. So Interstate 90, Interstate 80, both there, uh, up going through the service territory and to a certain extent I-70, even though it starts in a more southerly way, it did provide competition as you get into Ohio and Indiana. You can see how the Erie Lackawanna was a relatively small fish in a big pond and it really had to swim upstream in order to succeed. Now, there's one other thing that I also want to talk about that made the Erie Lackawanna's life challenging and that was rate divisions. Now, today as in years past, when railroads share traffic, and that might mean I own the railroad from point A to point B, you own the railroad from point B to point C, we've got to move cars from point A to point C, we will divide the amount of revenue that is paid for movement of that car between the two railroads. Now, this should be an easy process, right? If I take it 500 miles and you take it 250 miles, I'll get the majority of it and you'll get a little bit and then that's it. And that would make sense. But Keep in mind that railroads have added costs that go beyond simply what we call the line haul, that would be from point A to point B, of moving the car. And those costs are what it takes to classify cars in yards and also take them down the last mile to the shipper's dock or even to a transload facility. So I want you to think about this. If you're someone like the Erie Lackawanna Railroad and a lot of your operations are in New Jersey and New York State, what you have is an area where there's a lot of terminating traffic. That means you have not only large yards like Croxton Yard, but you have smaller yards like the one in Hilburn right outside of Suffern, New York, just above the New Jersey border. All these yards cost a lot of money, not only in the property taxes we were talking about earlier, but also just simply to operate. You need switchmen to throw the switch, uh, excuse me, you need, uh, you need brakemen to get down and throw the switches. You need engineers to operate the locomotives in these yards. You need crews. You need a lot in order to keep this going. And so the more cars that are coming into a terminal area, the higher costs that you're actually going to have. So while on one hand, you really want to be in some place like the New York metropolitan area because you say, hey, there's a lot of people here. There's a lot of businesses. There's a lot of opportunity to do this. Keep in mind that the amount of money you're going to have to spend to get those cars off the main line and to some place where a customer can get at them is going to be very high. And here's the added problem. Uh, 
if you're the Erie Lackawanna, you have to now figure out some way to get a higher portion of that rate to cover those costs at the end of the run or at the beginning, you know, maybe you're originating cars from there as well. So this is tough, especially when the other railroad that you're dealing with says, well, hey, you only moved at a thousand miles. I moved at 2000 miles. And so I should get the majority of this. And when you say, yeah, but I've got all these terminating costs, it's tough. You don't always get that. And the Eastern railroads, Erie Lackawanna was one of them, but also the Pennsylvania, New York Central, Baltimore and Ohio, they suffered from this when it came to traffic that was coming from the South. Now, we know the Erie Lackawanna didn't go very far South. Uh, in fact, I think the furthest Southern point is probably Summit, New Jersey, which is very, very well ensconced in the North Jersey area. But that didn't mean they didn't get traffic that came up from the southeastern United States from railroads like we've been talking about in our main series, the Seaboard Coastline, uh, and so on. So that traffic came up. It spent the majority of its time on the southern railroads. Then it gets interchanged to the Erie Lackawanna someplace like at Croxton Yard or nearby. And then they've got to take it a relatively short distance, maybe even less than 100 miles before they've got to get it to a customer customer's loading dock or facility and so that meant they were either taking losses on a lot of this traffic but they had to handle it by law or they were making very little profit not enough to sustain the infrastructure that was there and so this is just one of the final things that really did handicap the carrier but uh the coup de, well, i shouldn't say coup de gras i'd say the the other two factors that were important uh the first came in 1970 when the Penn Central declared bankruptcy. And once that happened, the Penn Central did not have to make its payments for cars moving interline. And so that left the Erie Lackawanna with a big deficit. And in those days, while now we tend to think of CSX and Norfolk Southern as ultimately the successors to all these carriers in the Northeast, not interchanging with each other very much. Uh, in those days, the Erie Lackawanna, the Penn Central, uh, Delaware and Hudson and so forth, they all interchange with each other a lot at a variety of places. So that meant if the Penn Central was able to either withhold paying interline, uh, making interline payments or delay paying those accounts, then that impacted the Erie Lackawanna's ability to operate because so much of the money that it would have been getting from this traffic that it is sharing back and forth wasn't coming in. But the other thing was Hurricane Agnes in 1972. And I've read many accounts. Now, I'm 42, so I wasn't alive for Hurricane Agnes, but that was a major storm that went all the way up the Mid-Atlantic. That tore up uh, a lot of railroad tracks, including the Northern Central, which at one point was a uh, major connecting, if slow, line for the Pennsylvania Railroad that got a lot of its traffic out of the D.C. area up to the larger portion of its system across Pennsylvania. Uh, a lot of people that had nothing to do with railroads were heavily impacted by Agnes, and Agnes took the last of the Erie Lackawanna's meager monies that it had set aside for capital improvements and the like just to get its railroad running again. That put it in bankruptcy and ultimately on the path to where it would be included in Conrail. Uh, but one more thing I want to talk about before I go, because this is a relatively short uh, video for you, is that is Derrico. And Derrico was a very, very interesting arrangement that I think it merits its own half-hour show, and we're going to do that at some point in the future. But Derrico, which was basically stands for Delaware and Hudson Erie Lackawanna Company, was a subsidiary created by the Norfolk and Western in order to take control 
of a lot of the so-called weak sister railroads. And now we're talking about the Erie Lackawanna itself, the Delaware and Hudson, the Boston and Maine, Jersey Central, and the Reading. All of these railroads were in a lot of trouble. Uh, almost none of them were profitable. Uh, if they were, it was only on maybe a quarterly basis. And I want to emphasize what it, why I keep talking about profitability. Now, a lot of you out there, especially if you're liberals, probably look at profits and say, well, profits are evil and we don't understand why they matter. And, you know, as long as uh, I had heard somebody say, well, as long as everybody's eating, it's OK. No, no, no. Profits are important, not for, not just from a moral reason, because a profit shows that people value your service much more than it costs you to provide it, but also from a practical reason, because you need the profits in order to reinvest in your system. And when it comes to railroads, this is more important than almost any other business, because I want you to think about this. If you operate something like a bank, you have a really easy ability to operate with relatively little in the way of capital investments. As long as your building isn't falling down, as long as your vault is secure, as long as your computer systems are secure, and you can reasonably uh, use your furniture, you know, people come in your bank, they have to sit down, the, the counter has to be in relatively good repair, but if things get a little chipped, a little damaged, a little dingy, and so on, it's okay. On the other hand, when we're talking about a railroad, if we're talking about the rails getting out of alignment, if you're talking about the locomotives not being able to make power, if you're talking about even the data systems not being able to reliably transmit information on cars, you have a severe breakdown. You have, at the very least, an inability to know what you have on your railroad and when, but at the worst, you have derailments, you have death, and you have destruction. So that's why the ability to reinvest your profits is particularly important when it comes to a railroad. And that's why all of these carriers being either unprofitable or marginally profitable, not just for months, not just for a couple of years, but for decades, was severely impacting not only their ability to survive, but also their ability to provide adequate excuse me, transportation, much less competitive transportation, that convinced people to not ship by highway or to take the train. So when the Norfolk and Western decided that it would merge with the Chesapeake and Ohio, which, by the way, had that actually taken place, would have been a dramatic game changer for the entire industry with two titans, uh, uh, two coal hauling, I should say, I'm sorry, titans uh, from the Pocahontas region moving coal out to the, uh, the Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads area, and then getting into Ohio where both carriers had a lot of trackage, ultimately reaching Chicago on two different routes, uh, excuse me, three different routes, because you had the Wabash, which was part of the N&W, the Nickel Plate, also part of the N&W, and then the Chesapeake in Ohio, with the Chesapeake in Ohio of Indiana, which was a small line, but under that may have very well become a very important artery for it. Uh, you had that to the south, and then you had what would be the Penn Central system uh, all throughout the service territory of all these railroads that we mentioned before, Jersey Central, Erie, Lackawanna, Boston, Maine, and so on. And so you could see how these carriers, which were struggling to make a profit uh, in a you know highly competitive environment, 
would struggle even more in a highly competitive environment where now their competitors are consolidated and able to lower their costs. So while they wouldn't be able to take advantage, well, none of these participants would have been able to take advantage of pricing power because of the way that pricing was controlled by the federal government at the time, what they would have been able to do is offer more destinations through traffic and so on. So you could certainly see a situation where someone with a relatively small network like an Erie Lackawanna would really suffer. So Derrico was created in order to hold all of these railroads and but do it in a way that in the event they went bankrupt or they had uh, dust ups with taxing authorities or otherwise that those uh, creditors would not be able to come after the financially strong N and W C and O system, which I've read and I can't substantiate this, and so hopefully some of you will that the you know combined N and W C and O is to be called the Norfolk and Western. Uh, which is probably one clue as to why it didn't happen. If you think back back to the personalities who were involved at the time, uh, but basically it was designed to protect them while also allowing them to take control of these carriers and just basically make a home for them. Now this wasn't exactly a um, you know the Interstate Commerce Commission asking for this to happen was not exactly a new thing because we remember what has been referred to as the forced inclusion of the New Haven into the Penn Central, that was another example of where the Interstate Commerce Commission decided, well, we've got to do something to help these carriers that are struggling. So when the Pennsylvania New York Central decided to merge, they said, the only way we'll let you do it is if you take the New Haven too. Well, the same conditions were being applied to the NNW and the CNO. And of course, it was to take all these railroads. Now, ultimately, what happened was the Boston and Maine decided it didn't want any part of that. And so they stayed independent, went bankrupt themselves, ultimately came out of bankruptcy and got swept into what would become Guilford, Pan Am, and is now part of CSX. Uh, the Jersey Central, which was controlled by the Reading, which itself was controlled by the B&O, and that was under the control of the Chesapeake in Ohio, uh, ultimately did not join as well because the merger didn't happen, so therefore, Jersey Central, Reading, uh, the other components wouldn't be there, but there were two railroads that did. The Erie Lackawanna is one, and the Delaware and Hudson, remember them from about 15 minutes ago? Yeah, they were the other part of Derrico. They became wards of the N&W, and then they ended up having N&W leadership, uh, whether we're talking about Joe Nykirk and John Turbyfill, who helped to, uh, Nykirk was the operating guy, Turbyfill, financial, uh, and both of them would go on to become vice chairman of Norfolk Southern. Uh, they were playing key roles at the Erie Lackawanna under Jack Fishwick, who led the company. Uh, he himself would also go on to become the head of the NNW and make some very inflammatory comments about small railroads like the Bangor and Aroostook, basically saying, look, there is no reason for them to exist. That's probably what he's best known for these days. But he was a very astute railroad man and did a great job leading the Erie Lackawanna. And I was actually privileged to get a letter back from him when I wanted to bring the Erie Lackawanna back as a short liner regional. I wrote to him and asked him if he would join the board of directors. Now, I was a pretty naive guy. Didn't realize, A, you know, he was quite a bit older at that time and probably was, you know, beyond the years of board service. But also, um, you know, I didn't understand what it really was to be in the leadership position of railroads in this era, uh, in this state. So 
it's certainly something you probably would not have wanted any part of. But I was privileged to get a letter back from him, you know, politely declining. But uh, but he, it, you could tell he had read what I sent him and so forth. And you know, knowing how important to the industry he is now, that that's something I count as being a great honor. Um, so you had him there, and ultimately you had uh, Bruce Sturzing, who of course came from the NNW, went back there later, who took over the Delaware and Hudson, and he would be the guy who was responsible for cool stuff like the PAs coming from uh, GE and originally the Santa Fe to the, the DNH and ultimately, in a way, setting the stage for their preservation uh, as they currently exist now, two in Mexico and two here in the United States. And one of which you will see in our 2024 calendar, which is going on sale this week. And so keep watching etsy.com slash shop slash all things trains so you can be the first one to get that calendar and get it on your wall so uh that was the derrico era and derrico did a few very interesting things that's what led to the pas dnh's pas coming on to the erie lackawanna which apparently made the dnh people very unhappy and the erie lackawanna e8s going up to the dnh uh, another example of it are the um nickel plate 759 and uh, Reading 2102 steam trips that took place on the Erie Lackawanna. Now I've uh, heard through you know the Erie Lackawanna mailing list, which I was a member of for years, and a lot of the discussions that the EL really wasn't a big fan of those steam trips. But because they were controlled by the NNW and the NNW loved the steam trips, that's why they happened there. So for those who weren't necessarily big fans of the NNW taking over the Erie or thought maybe it wasn't uh, perhaps the the best partner because of that, there were some neat things that came about. Uh, but the most tangible, which in at least one case you can still see, was that the NNW did provide capital to the Erie Lackawanna in the form of new locomotives. So the SD45Ms, which most of us call SDP45s, the first order of those which had dual control stands, uh, of which the at least number 3639 survives at the Virginia Museum of Transportation. You saw that uh, in our Facebook post. And if you didn't, go over to Facebook and see. Uh, and and by the way, the cool thing about it is you can you look at it really closely. You can see the Erie Lackawanna striping and lettering prominently under the Conrail Blue. So you have just so much history in one locomotive uh, that's accessible to the public easily. Go to the Virginia Museum of Transportation uh, in Roanoke and you can see it. They funded that. Now, it's been said they did it by taking dividends from the TH, uh, which would show, again, how they wanted to be as financially uninvolved as possible. But ultimately, none of this saved the Erie Lackawanna. And on April Fool's Day 1976, it ended up becoming... I say the majority of it went on to become part of Conrail and the railroad or the company itself ultimately would spend the next 20 years paying debts down, making distributions to debt holders and going out of existence. And, you know, that's all she wrote. But today it still does play an important part in the transportation infrastructure in the East. So if you're in New Jersey, go visit the Hoboken Terminal. We've done some videos from there. It really is a cathedral of transportation. And it's really neat in that you can visit the Hoboken Terminal and Grand Central Terminal in the same day. You can compare and you can see what the contrast was between the two different railroads and how, you know, the, the folks on the other side of the river on the New York side, yeah, they were quite a bit wealthier and it shows just in the way that things were done. But also, at the same time, you can also see the sort of enthusiasm and style 
that went into railroading of that era of the early 1900s and why it was a big deal to be in the industry, uh, to take the train and otherwise. And so they're just two great areas to visit. Uh, you can ride tourist trains, go up to Honesdale, Pennsylvania, and there is a great tourist railroad there. I can't remember the name of it now, but it's been the Sturbridge line, the Lackawaxen and Sturbridge and so on. Uh, it is a great line to visit. They have uh, former, several former Canadian Pacific FP7s, uh, one of which is painted up in Pennsylvania, dark green locomotive enamel, a.k.a. Brunswick Green, a.k.a. the Brunswick Green PLB microphone that we've got right here. Uh, they have a BL2, which is still in Bangor in rustic colors and has been for many years. And remember, the BL2 is a very rare locomotive, so not only we get to see one, but you can ride behind it. Uh, and they have a great collection of equipment, whether we're talking about a variety of cabooses from several different railroads um, that are in tremendous shape. But it's also just a great line to ride. And I remember doing that as a uh, teenager years and years ago. And uh, here's a little spot. I don't actually I don't know if they do this now, but they had a train robbery take place in the middle of it. And now I know today you're probably thinking that that was crime. Somebody actually was trying to rob the train back then. It was actors on horses and it was a lot of fun um so tourist trains you take there also up in new york state the new york and lake erie a few of them offer those uh of course commuter trains in new jersey can ride on the erie lackawanna all day uh if you go to chicago go to polk and dearborn and you'll find dearborn station which is where the erie lackawanna's passenger trains would terminate on their western end that's also where they would be side by side with trains like santa fe super chief and uh, Chicago and Eastern Illinois and Louisville and Naturals, Georgia. That station still exists. It's long been bereft of track. The track has uh, sadly been gone for decades and they've kind of made it into a, um, it's a little bit of like a shopping mall and mixed use retail development. So if you're like me and you want to, to smell some diesel fuel and creosote and so forth. You're not going to get that satisfaction, but you will be able to see the building, which is very, very unique uh, in its design and not far away is Union Station. So take your camera, take a, get some shots of Dearborn Station and also go on over to Union and see where trains are still operating today. You've heard plenty here about how Chicago is a great place. And uh, finally, if you're in Cleveland or if you're near Cleveland, go to Cleveland Union Terminal. Cleveland Union Terminal was the last place that an Erie Lackawanna uh, passenger train outside of the New Jersey, New York commuter zone operated. And Cleveland Union Terminal, while it no longer serves inner city passenger trains, it still does serve uh, trains of the Cleveland's RTA, which comes in there. And that got put in by the same Van Swearingen brothers who at one time owned the Erie, the Chesapeake in Ohio, and controlled the Missouri Pacific, uh, and as well as controlled the nickel plate. And uh, the station is in tremendous shape. It's a great place. You can walk around, see just about everything. It's also been converted to other uses, but it is worth your time. And nearby is the Midland building, and that's where the Erie Lackawanna was headquartered. Now, we're making sure these streams are a little bit shorter because we want to make sure you have a chance to get out, enjoy the world, and do some rail fanning uh, on your own so you're not listening to me the whole time. But I just want to add one programming note before we sign off. We've taken a break from the railroad recaps. There, there, there we go. Rail, railroad recaps. 
Railroad recaps. Uh, we've taken a break from those because I'm not quite sure it gives you the value you need. So I want to encourage you to go over to Transcontinental Railroad Productions. The folks over there do an amazing job with giving you great railroad news. And so what we're going to do is push their content for that. And right here, we will give you the longer form discussions, whether we're talking about the Erie Lackawanna, the Seaboard Coastline, or otherwise. And so I am out of here. But before I go, go over to Etsy.com slash shop slash all things trains. Get you some great railroad memorabilia support the show support our content and we will see you later this week to get back to our series on the seaboard coastline and railroad mergers see you on the main line i hope you have a great day